Uh, welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Rivulus Irrigation Training Series. I'm your host, Richard Restucia, and today we're going to be talking about something that I think uh, we're going to hear more and more about. It's one of the hottest topics in agriculture today. It's regenerative agriculture. And uh, what we're going to try to do today is really help all our viewers understand what this is, how it impacts growers, how it impacts consumers because um, I think right now it's hard to find a hotter subject. If you look at any digital media, it seems like everybody's talking about this right now. And fortunately for us today, we've got Miles Sorrell. He's the founder and chief executive officer for Terraforma. Uh, and, and I just got to stop and mention, you know, um, he's been doing this for a little while, right? So this is a hot topic today, but Miles has been around talking about this, pushing these concepts for a long time. And uh, anybody who's as uh, young as he is and has CEO and founder uh, in their title, I really respect because it takes a lot to, uh, to step out and try something that uh, is new and different, uh, especially at, uh, at a young age. So uh, I've had some opportunity to talk with Miles and his commitment to sustainability and conservation is really high. I really appreciate what he and his company are doing and uh, so happy that he's joining us today. Miles, welcome and thank you again for joining us today. Yeah, thanks Richard, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to kind of share some of these concepts and, and talk about them with you and share what knowledge I've gained over, really it's been the past seven years, I've been really involved with the regenerative space in a big way. So <laughs> yeah, quite a bit of experience to have in a, uh, you know, in quite a kind of mid-tier level of time, yeah. Yeah. So look, in, uh, in, in, uh, in irrigation management, uh, in agriculture, we're all business people first, right? Or <laughs> right at the top. Uh, and so we hear a lot about regenerative ag. Uh, it's, uh, as I mentioned, a big buzzword in the industry today. Uh, mm -hmm. How does this uh, relate to business? How is your business right now? Yeah, it's definitely picked up over the past three or four years. It's been a, a mix of a number of global events, right? Everything from the initial hit to COVID and fertilizer supply chain, um, moving into like Russia-Ukraine war, you know, 30% of fertilizers come out of that region. So the increasing prices on fertilizer have put a lot of pressure on growers to find alternative options. Um, and then generally regulatory pressure, right? Um, increased climate variability. Um, a lot of these, a lot of governments are talking about this space. We have a lot of carbon credit discussions. Um, so it's definitely a burgeoning uh, industry and a burgeoning side of agriculture that we're starting to understand with a greater depth of, of knowledge. Um, for us personally, we've definitely seen an expansion in where we're working, who we're working with, the scale of the people that we're working with, the growers we're working with. Um, you know, we have clients across the world from Asia to Central South America and the U.S. Um, so it's it's been quite a proliferation uh, as people are trying to become a little bit more conscious of the aftermath of the practices that have been kind of cultivated for the past 60, 70 years through conventional agriculture. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it's a it's a tough job. So, number one, I want to say I'm really happy that it is uh, it, the business is good. Right. I think this is a good sign. Uh, number two, you know, I can't imagine the difficulty of uh, trying to change people's ideas 
of the way they do something, a process that they've been yeah. doing for years. It's not an easy task, but I think you have some good science behind it now to uh, to help people get over that. And then I'm also finding that a lot of growers want to be the first in. They want to be have this reputation of uh, of actually being change agents. And we haven't, you know, I, I think that's great. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there is sort of a mixed bag when it comes to that change agent, right? A lot of the time with with some growers, especially in the U.S., you know, there's a lot of farmers looking over fences, kind of seeing what their neighbors are up to, and nobody wants to try something and have it fail, right? Um, so it's usually kind of kept under under wraps a little bit uh, on the farms. They don't really want to get out to the community like, hey, they're doing this weird thing with with microbes or these regenerative practices until they find success in it, right? So it's kind of, they want to be the first to have it be successful, but they don't want you to know what's going on until they find that success, right? Which is, which is understandable. Uh, but that, there are a lot of first movers in this space, people who are really passionate about trying to build their soil health, increase their sort of long-term profitability um, and seeing that and taking that into consideration when they're building their programs and trying to really aggressively learn how can I do this differently? Like, what can I do to keep my land viable for my children moving forward? Yeah. So before we get into uh, my first real question, I just want to uh, ask you an, uh, kind of an, a follow-up to what you just said. And that is um, these regenerative practices are designed to increase yields, not decrease, right? Yeah. Uh, the work that we do, we take profitability of the farmer as the key objective, right? Um, everything that we're working on as Terraforma is to move farmers and conventional agriculture towards regenerative farming practices through profitable mechanisms. Realistically, that's the only way we see this working at scale is to incentivize growers through profits, realistically. Um, so everything that we want to implement, we're definitely trying to see like ex expansive profits come out of that system. Now that might not be year one to year two, that might be over a three year period, uh, but oftentimes we will see benefits to, to implementing these types of practices immediately. And uh, realistically, you know, we always tell growers and our clients, we want to implement things little by little because there is a learning curve with everything you do. Um, every farm has a slightly different management practice, different equipment, different processes, different land. So, you know, to have a grower work new systems into their uh, agricultural program, it's definitely something that you want to take baby steps in because you're going to learn a lot along the way. Um, but every, it's doable across the world, any crop, any ecosystem, um, you can make positive changes for your soil health and your regenerative system. Yeah, that's great. And that really helps because we all know we've got to feed more people with uh, less water. Yeah. And uh, so people worry, I think that, uh, oh, I'll make the switch, but I won't produce as much. So anyway, I think uh, what might be helpful right now is we just uh, get into it and, uh, and you help us define what regenerative agriculture is. Sure. So I've got a couple slides here to help kind of understand this, but um, you know, the best way that I can describe regenerative agriculture is as a sliding scale. Um, you know, there's a lot of different definitions out there. I think everybody kind of has their own idea of what regenerative means to them. Um, on the one hand, you have very strict regulations, right? So, you know, if we're looking at something like the regenerative organic certified framework, which is something supported by Rodale and Patagonia, um, that's an institutional framework that's driven to really push people towards uh, a highly regenerative based system where it's highly regulated, no synthetic chemicals, right? You have to have a certain amount of diversity within the system. Um, you need to be uh, reaching certain benchmarks. And I think that's fantastic. And that's a good way to help incentivize people to get there. 
but we have to also have some sort of market to support that, right? Uh, these processes are going to use space in your land for growing other types of crops. So they're going to be used for growing cover species, um, increasing diversity. And that means that you're having less cash crop per acre, right? Um, so it will be a little bit less productive at a certain point. Um, and so in being able to have a market where people are willing to pay a little bit more to support that is important. Um, on the other end of things, you know, the way that I would personally define regenerative agriculture is just building soil health, increasing biodiversity. And I don't really think that needs to be separate from conventional agriculture. I don't think you need to remove fertilizer from that equation all the way. Uh, if we can reduce that as much as physically possible um, and still have a result where we're storing more carbon in the soil, um, we're increasing productivity over time. And we're seeing an increase in biodiversity across the board, both from the microbial spectrum and above ground. Uh, then we're actually creating a benefit, and we don't have to go from what was a traditional cult, uh, cultivating method all the way to this far end spectrum, where I think a lot of growers feel uh, a bit isolated or alienated from reaching that goal. Um, so I think finding that middle ground where we can help growers to take a step in the right direction, and instead of releasing all of this carbon, like contributing to erosion and pollution we can work towards building a healthier ecosystem within the framework of the, and the efficiency of the systems that we've built today. Um, Cause again, you know, if you've got a $700,000 tractor and like a combine, you're not going to want to like completely flip that around from one day to the next. Um, and so we have to be really conscious of how farmers, how quickly farmers can adapt and change to those systems as well. Uh, Cause it's not something you can just snap your fingers and change overnight. Yeah, I, I often think about that, right? The capital investment I have in my equipment. And now if I'm yeah. going from uh, one crop to different crops each year, uh, how do I deal with that? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, again, from the regenerative perspective, uh, and I'm going to flip to uh, some pictures here. Uh, there's a lot of different forms of regenerative ag. And a lot of that is going to be dictated by your climate and your biome, right? If you're in an area where you're in the plains, like the Midwest, it's not necessarily uh, a, like an apical like a biome that's going to support a tropical forest, right? You're not going to reach that level of regenerative. So the, the, the definition of regenerative in that stance is going to be, okay, how can we increase the number of different crops or species or implement a cover crop or um, increase general biodiversity and productivity in this area and build that soil over time through something like no-till, for instance. Uh, if you're working in a system like in the bottom right here, where it's this is a picture of a coffee farm in Guatemala, um, that is going to be more of a forested system. However, it can still be more or less monocropped, right? The only thing growing here is coffee and it's high productivity coffee and it's grown with nitrogen fixing trees to help reduce the amount of nitrogen that needs to be applied to the plants. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of systems where we can maintain that, okay, this is really a single cash crop and we're producing that at highly productive levels, but that's not detracting from the productivity of the land or the ability of that land to store water or to store carbon over time. Yeah, interesting. So I do wanna remind everybody that I do have the uh, Q&A and the chat open. So if you have some questions, uh, type them in there and I'll get them to Miles uh, when appropriate. Or if you've got a comment, you wanna put it in the chat, uh, please do that as well. So, um, so uh, Miles, if you could just walk us around these photos, what are we looking at? You mentioned the coffee, what, what else is here? Yeah, so in, in the top left uh, is kind of an example of land that is pretty barren, right? You can see cracking in the soil surface. It's completely uncovered. Um, this is a landscape that I would consider susceptible to potential like erosion, uh, nutrient losses. Uh, you know, clearly herbicides been applied here to keep the plate clean. 
Um, this is a situation where I would say this crop is vulnerable, right? Um, mm. It's vulnerable because it's going to be grown with GMO crops that are all going to be exactly genetically identical, um, which is a problem for pest and disease pressure, right? Not to say that those crops are inherently bad. They serve a good function. Uh, they're drought resistant. That saved a lot of farmers, particularly this season. Um, however, if we all have the same genetics, we're extremely vulnerable to disease. So we're going to have to continuously pivot those genetics year after year. Um, and that's also going to affect our ability to produce like valuably very well. Um, so it's something to bear in mind. But the biggest issues here are losing topsoil, uh, leaching uh, nitrates into the watershed, um, and generally just not having enough soil support and structure to be able to hold new water. Um, so on the one hand, we've got these genetically modified plants that are drought resistant, but we're also proning the soil to be heavily drought prone, right? So it's kind of, there's multiple ways to fight that, right? We could either increase the health of the soil, rebuild the structure, get more organic matter into that system, and that's going to increase the water holding capacity. Um, and then we won't need to have quite as much drought resistant uh, cultivars as well. Um, in this top right photo, we have a, a corn crop that is cover planted in the off season. So this is leading into planting. Uh, this is actually a picture I took from, um, from this year, earlier in the season. Um, and it's just to demonstrate, you know, you, you can have these types of practices in place, um, conserve some of the, the residue, get a lot more organic matter growing, scavenge a lot of those nutrients through something like a cover plant. And that can actually help to increase the organic matter and soil build structure over time. Um, you know, every time I see a clean pallet, completely tilled land that's just sitting in the sun, um, it's a sign to me that you're not leveraging the ability to photosynthesize to add, add something to that soil. So we always want to see soil covered as much as physically possible. Um, it's just generally a great practice to, to leverage any sort of time that you might have in a system. Um, and then bottom left here, we actually have a, a grape uh, orchard. Um, this is a picture taken in Peru from one of our clients there. Um, it started as, I mean, the soils here are like 95% sand. Um, and we were able to, to start bringing that organic matter up from like about under half a percent towards one, one and a half percent over two or three years. And you can see the amount of biodiversity that's been included here, right? We have cover plants underneath the canopy. Um, we have cover plants on the roadways. Um, they're serving functions of both suppressing pest and disease through natural predators, as well as building that structure, reducing erosion, increasing organic matter, and, and fixing nutrients in the soil profile as well. Um, so in both of these bottom two photos, we've been able to cut out inorganic fertilizers all the way um, because we have the support mechanism in place to be able to, to grow these crops without that type of artificial or outside input. Um, you know, when it comes to seasonality, like in the States, uh, growing corn and soy, you know, we would hope to just be able to, at a minimum, really reduce the amount of fertilizer going into those fields and increase the use efficiency of what, uh, what is applied. Um, you know, about anywhere from 30 to 70% of most fertilizer is just wasted, washed out of the, the soil. If we can leverage closer to, you know, 80% of that at minimum, that's a lot less fertilizer going out into the soil. Yeah, we had uh, Corey Broad on last week and he was just talking about doing a, a water test on your yeah. farm and how he had one customer that had the equivalent of about 200 pounds of nitrogen uh, in, in the water already. Uh, yeah. So no real need for uh, any fertilizer. But um, anyway, we have a question coming in and uh, and question has to do with... Um, uh, cover cropping, right? Mm -hmm. Is the proper way to plant a cover crop 
and then somehow uh, cut it down, reduce it, have animals graze on it, and then plant your 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 next crop right in the cover crop. Yeah, so cover crops can be a little bit complex on the tail end when you come to termination. Um, there's a number of different ways you can look into that. Obviously, being able to have animals like graze it or come through um, is a great option uh, if you have that available. Most farmers uh, in the U.S. aren't doing kind of cattle and mixing that in with their cash crops. Um, so typically it's not something that you'll see. If you have that available, it's, it is a fantastic option to be able to support your cattle and graze them through. Of course, you're only gonna have cover crops for a small portion of the season. So you still have to support all of that cattle the rest of the year and have feed stock available. Um, if you can get a roller crimper, uh, that's a fantastic option to be able to come roll it down and you can get a lot more biomass built up that way and then plant into the cover plant, maintain that mulch layer and that's going to help with water retention. It's going to help with organic matter and it's going to help with weed suppression a bit as well. Um, the issue with the roller crimper is if the weather doesn't cooperate, it can be difficult to get into the field. Um, if you don't have the right weight and termination technique, um, you're going to have some volunteer pop back up basically. So you've got to play with your system a little bit. Again, recommend doing it on a smaller scale and then figuring out what works for you and then scaling that up as you move forward. Um, and then having just a backup strategy. Um, you know, a lot of cover plants are burned down with herbicide. Um, you know, it's not ideal. However, it's better than tilling. So, you know, if it was between kind of turning up your cover plant and mixing it into your soil um, with like a with like a vertical filler or something along those lines and burning it down with an herbicide, I would prefer an herbicide over tilling the surface. So uh, another couple of questions are coming in on this. And so one, somebody's uh, concerned about uh, with cover crops, that it's just going to create a um, uh, haven for insects and uh, mm -hmm. not beneficial. So they're worried about uh, uh, reduction of their uh, yield due to too many insects. Right. Um, you know, realistically, insects are insect pests specifically are always, you know, they're always an issue. Um, the best way to manage that without insecticide is to build a system where you can have predatory species in the mix. Um, you're never going to 100% get rid of pest pressure in that way. You just want to find that balance. So selecting the right cover plant, uh, one that might be able to support more of a predatory organism than an organism that's going to cause problems moving into your cash crop system uh, is going to be an important piece of that. Um, so if you're selecting a crop and you're having that kind of insect pressure that's going to move from your cover crop into your cash crop, um, I would suggest most likely pivoting your cover crop options and looking for something that's going to limit the pests and not encourage them to to breed in the off season. Okay. All right. Good ideas. Um, and then another question about uh, no-till. Is no-till really no-till or is it uh, nine yeah. inches instead of 24? What, uh, what, what's the workable definition here? Uh, I, I would say no-till should be no-till. Um, you really want to be careful tilling under your O horizon. So that top layer of the soil um, that's where a lot of the biological activity is going to be taking place. That's where a lot of your organic matter is going to be kind of building up and storing. Every time you turn all of that under, it's going to more quickly volatilize. So you're going to flip it under the top of the soil. It's going to be more contact uh, within that soil system. It's going to have a lot more oxygen and bacteria are going to start going to work. And it's going to volatilize a lot of that organic matter very quickly. Um, so if you want to conserve carbon in your soil, if you want to build up that bank of organic matter, uh, and also save the structure of the soil too. Um, you know, all those root systems are doing all this work to build structure. The fungi are doing all this work to build structure. 
every time you come through and till that up, you're destroying all of that structure and you're kind of left with, you know, you've got something aerated in the short term, but it's something that's going to deflate fairly quickly uh, and lead you with a more compacted mess. Um, as well as, you know, if you're tilling down to nine inches, depending on the weight of your equipment, it's very probable you're creating a compaction layer down at that nine inches. Um, and that's something you want to be cautious of as well. You know, the roots are only going to grow as deep as the, the compaction layer once you get over like 300 PSI. So you want to be careful about destroying all of that work that you do with a cover plant or um, even like a mixed cash crop system where you might have some associative cover plants in the system. Yeah, so a few weeks ago, I was at the uh, California Agricultural uh, Irrigation Association meeting, and one of the growers was talking about all the rain that hit California last year, and what is the weight of all that rain? Yeah. And uh, what it does, uh, and, and he was talking about, we're going to learn what that did for the compaction of the soil. But uh, I guess the, uh, the, the solution, this is a question, is the solution adding more um, compost or organic material? Yeah, generally, um, you know, it takes time to work through a compaction layer. Um, you know, in the short term, if you're going from a tilled system into a no-till system, you might even consider doing one more deep till to break something like that up. Um, using something like a soil knife, getting in there and breaking things up without turning over the soil is a much better option than coming through and tilling everything. Um, so if you are going for more of a no-till style system, but you feel like you've got compaction at nine inches, you know, even like 12 inches, get in there with a soil knife to try to break that up. Um, you know, if you can help get um, biology, like microbes down in that system that can help to start building structure and breaking through those compaction layers, that's always a great thing to be able to inject through something like that. Um, but generally speaking, supporting plants that are gonna have a deeper root system that have the capacity to kind of break through some of that compaction and start working through it is also a fantastic option. So if you are going no-till, having cover plants and, and getting cover plants in place that are gonna be able to conserve structure and build more depth uh, into the soil profile is gonna be a fantastic option. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, thank you. And um, we've got uh, one more question I want to cover right yeah. now, and that is uh, the U.S. Farm Bill's coming up in the near future. What changes, what incentives could be offered to uh, get growers to shift to uh, regenerative ag a little bit faster? Yeah, uh, regulations, one of the things that drives me a little crazy always, um, you know, just an anecdote is, you know, we've worked with compost for a very, very long time. Uh, and general like USDA regulations uh, sometimes can be a little bit silly, right? They're general guidelines to help protect people and make a, a decent product. Um, but it gets to a certain point where if you're above like carbon to nitrogen ratio of 40, you're no longer can be like certified organic, your compost isn't good. However, if you get the end result, you know, we're well within the expected range, right? So they don't always make the most sense. And that's one of the problems with regulatory bodies and like trying to convert towards regenerative is a lot of the time there's these archaic rules that are difficult to change. Um, definitely incentive structures. So helping people fund the transition and helping support people through like, you know, losses on a learning curve. If you're trying to implement something like a cover plant, um, filing for crop insurance that allows you to actually experiment with that as opposed to, kind of keeping crop insurance at a level where, you know, if your crop grow, if your cover crop grows for too long of a period, um, you're not going to be covered anymore, right? It's too much biomass and they're not going to support that. So I think there needs to be a little bit more incentive for those growers that are trying new things um, and who are really trying to push the envelope when it comes to regenerative practices. Um, and instead of sort of subsidizing conventional fertilizer, trying to start subsidizing people who are in growers who are really trying to, um, 
shift the paradigm um, and mm -hmm. store more carbon in soil, build build soil over time, and reduce runoff. Yeah, interesting. Very, very, uh, very um, complicated issue. Um, so. What I'm wondering now is, you know, if I'm a grower, what what benefits besides uh, potentially greater yields am I going to find? Yeah. So when we kind of talk about general improvements of sort of regenerative practices or are switching to more of like a biological based system, um, generally we're going to see reduced chemical and synthetic usage, right? Um, if you can improve the health of the soil, you're going to open up pathways um, from the microbiology that's growing in that soil to be able to get the nutrition to the plant. The more organic matter you have, the more available nutrition you're going to have in that system. So it's effectively almost free nutrition for the plant, as long as it's a healthy functioning ecosystem. Um, so you'll be able to pull back on chemical usage as you build up um, a healthy soil. And the synthetic chemical usage should start to drop off as well. You shouldn't need quite as much of that. Um, a healthier plant is going to have overall a more balanced immune system. It's going to be able to defend itself a little bit better. Um, and even problems with pest pressure can start to diminish. Um, as you're, if you're over applying nitrates, which many farmers are, you're going to have that store up in the leaf structure. Um, and that functions more or less as a signal for pests to attack the plant effectively. Um, if you can balance that nutrition, not overload, you know, one nutrient or a couple nutrients, um, the plant will all, all around be healthier um, and still be able to produce a very high yield. So you're able to see those reductions in synthetic and chemical usage. Um, you can see the increases in yield, right? Uh, again, a lot of what's put out in the soil is just lost immediately, uh, washed out into the watershed. Um, so if we can hold that in place, what is applied, as well as leverage micronutrients and, and macronutrients that are coming from the natural landscape, um, you're going to be able to grow a healthier crop. It's going to be able to support a crop um, that is going to yield higher than what you might even get with a conventional system with a high uh, intensive input system. Um, water holding capacity is a big one. You already mentioned the amount of rainfall that's coming through California. Um, you know, if you have compaction, uh, if you don't have a lot of organic matter, you are going to have a lot of runoff from the water supply. You're going to hit that compaction layer and all that water is going to run sideways and it's going to take a lot of your topsoil with it. Um, so being able to hold water for longer periods of time and being able to kind of soak a lot of that water up that's in heavy rainfall periods goes a long way to supporting both drought and um, sort of flooding conditions at the same time, which is a little bit uh, counterintuitive that it would do both. Uh, but being able to hold to the, to, the, uh, to the water for longer periods because of that structure um, and being able to kind of filter the water more slowly through the soil profile uh, allows you to manage both conditions a little bit more effectively. Um, so all of that leads to general better resilience within the system. Uh, we want to be able to have that native resilience, especially as the climate's been shifting so much. And we do have this weather system that is more sporadic. We're having more drought, more rain across the, across the board, um, no matter where we are in the States uh, or across the world. So being able to effectively address those stresses on the farming system um, is extremely important and building out a, a strong microbial network and an organic matter base within that soil, having cover crops that can hold the soil in place and build year after year um, also helps to reduce the amount of, of stress that the plants are gonna encounter through some of these like drought style conditions. Um, and then of course, we wanna increase farmer autonomy. Uh, for a very long time, farmers are buying GMO seeds that have a cost. They're buying a whole bunch of fertilizer that's getting pumped into their land. And then you're buying fungicides and insecticides all of these things 
keep farmers beholden to fairly large companies that want to keep selling you more products. So if we can pull back on the amount of those products that are used in favor of practices that the farmer controls, um, you also take back a degree of self-reliance on the farmer. Uh, where they have a bit more control over their financial situation and they have more control of exactly what goes into and happens on their farm. So it's a bit more work to, to do it that way. But at the end of the day, you're going to be in a much more secure position. Yeah, because that was uh, that was one of the questions, right, is uh, does this does it cost more to be regenerative? Yeah, well, I know I actually don't think it does cost more. And a, a lot of that's market dependent in the system. And I think it depends on what kind of regenerative you're trying to be. Um, you know, there there's big problems with with market fit, right? And I think I, I brought that up a little bit in the in the start of the conversation. Um, people aren't necessarily paying more than organic right now. There's not a regenerative label that gives people a premium um, right. on the sale of that type of good. So you're not getting the same. Like when you switch to organic, maybe you yield a little less, but the you know you sell your your crop for so much more um, that it makes up for that difference handedly. And regenerative, that's not really a thing right now. Um, so you don't have that support system. Um, however, you are using so much less synthetic chemical. You're using so much less um, fertilizer um, and you're leveraging natural resources. Once you get that system locked in, it's a lot more efficient, right? You're not having to spend a whole bunch of money on outside resources. You're able to kind of produce from within. The problem is changing systems are, is hard. Right, getting locked into a new system is difficult. So that learning curve, I'd say, is probably the most expensive portion, um, which is where sometimes it helps to have somebody kind of hold your hand, walk you through it, um, or start small and experiment, and then roll it out into a larger scale from there. This is actually the most exciting thing that I'm seeing right now from a uh, from a marketing perspective uh, is this concept of branding growers. Right, mm. if we can have a celebrity chef. Why can't we have a celebrity grower? And yeah. uh, I notice now, even with some wines from France, you can find that this the grapes for this wine were grown by, and thus the reputation of ever, whoever grew it is increasing the value. And uh, like I said, this is exciting to me. This is actually uh, I'm 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 doing something better and di that's different, and I'm getting rewarded for it. Definitely. Yeah. And you do see growers in the States too. Like, uh, you know, I think Gabe Brown has become kind of a household name for a lot of farmers um, and, and his kind of regenerative practice and movement. So there are a lot of people that have managed to implement systems that are on the very like far side of, of regenerative, you know, integrating animals into their cropping, cropping system, doing rotations, all this stuff and remain fairly profitable. You know, I've also seen systems where it's a full like agroforestry system. Um, and they're growing four or five different crops in that system. And they're struggling to be profitable because you have to know how to process each different crop in a different way. You have to know how to harvest it. You need an expert for each thing. So there's some systems that function a little bit more efficiently and others that are extremely regenerative, but they struggle to be profitable in some ways. So yeah. kind of tying those things together, focusing on, you know, let's build up better health in the system reduce like the amount of inputs going in, give farmers autonomy, but keep that all profitable at the same time. Right. Um, and it's extremely possible to do all of that at once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I totally see that the consumers, right. We see this in organic and I see that the consumers are willing to spend more, right. Mm -hmm. For the, for what they perceive as a better product. So what else does uh, regenerative farming do for consumers? Yeah, let's, uh, this is just a little graphic of showing where you can shift from conventional 
uh, inputs towards native processes. But uh, on the consumer side, um, there are numerous benefits, right? In, in general, a lot of these are going to be environmental benefits, right? Um, we have massive algae blooms that are spawning in rivers and in the ocean that is largely due to nitrates into the water supply. So if we can help to regulate the amount of fertilizer that we're using, uh, have less runoff, which is not only an issue for farmers pocketbooks, right? You're wasting money every time you're flushing fertilizer down the drain. It's also polluting water supplies. So it's causing issues with the survivability of fish, um, with the quality of water. There's uh, numerous problems there that would, this would help to solve if we can shift farmers towards more native mechanisms of growth. Um, we can increase the nutritional profile of crops. This is kind of a little bit more, um, you know, understudy, I would say. Um, most, most kind of agronomic scientists are going to say that anything grown with chemicals is going to be just as nutritious as something grown, um, organically, for instance, but something to keep in mind is organic is not regenerative just because something's organic doesn't mean they're treating their soil. Well, right. A lot of organic growers uh, are actually worse than conventional growers because they have to till so much more. So you're exposing more of that, uh, soil to the sun, you're uh, diminishing more of the carbon that's held there. So we really need to focus on the difference between a regenerative crop um, and a conventional organic crop. Um, but if you have the proper balance in place, the plant is going to have what it needs when it needs it. Um, and that's going to lead to a crop that has better nutritional quality, right? And this is also an issue when we walk into, say, like GMO high yielding foods. If we're focused on yield all the time and not nutritional density, um, and we're pushing genetics to yield more and not be nutritionally more dense. Um, we're not really, you know, instigating a system where we're going to have nutrition for, for people in mind. Um, and then of course, improve food security. If we can grow more crops in the same land area, if we're not degrading soil to the point where it's desertified and we have to abandon it for crop growth, um, we're going to include, we're going to improve the uh, food security for the planet. We're going to have more food available for more people. Um, so that's kind of the, the benefit to like the environment and humans, um, you know, and then also we have carbon storage. Uh, as we start to build more organic matter, store more carbon in the soil, um, that can make an impact on, on climate change. It can help to reduce the amount of emissions and kind of build that back into the system. Um, you know, it's, it's by no means a one size fit all solution, uh, but it could help uh, to, to add some benefit. Um, and then of course the runoff and pollution, which was mentioned, uh, it's a big one. Um, and then maintaining habitats for biodiversity as well. If we're able to stop putting so much pesticide, um, build out environments where there are more uh, diversity of plants, we will be able to also encourage different and more diverse ecosystems within those different areas. Um, and while this is sort of, you know, who cares about biodiversity type of question, like what is, how does that affect me? You know, as we have extinction events and we are in one of the largest extinction events we've ever been in, uh, it's just on a microbial level more than anything else. Um, we lose our ability to adapt and we lose our ability for uh, organisms higher up in the food chain to thrive. So it's very important that we preserve the amount of biodiversity that we have available to us. Um, and it's going to create more resilient systems if we have that biodiversity in place. Yeah, so I, I, it's exciting, right? Because every bullet you have up here, um, uh, it, it's not just a fringe group in society that wants this. It's really the majority of people are asking for this now. So it's um, you can definitely see how uh, consumers benefit from this. Certainly, yeah. So, yeah, there's a huge direct benefit to them, yeah. 
Yeah, we've got a question coming in from one of our viewers, and it has to do with even uh, if I'm a backyard grower or I'm a very you know small scale grower. We're coming to the end of the season. Uh, mm -hmm. After I harvest, should I just leave my plants there until next year, and then uh, and then plant around them? Uh, how do I incorporate the plants into the soil? What's what are some techniques here? Yeah, I'm I'm usually a big fan of of chop and drop. So if you have a, a a crop like if you're growing corn in your backyard or something like that, and you harvest it, um, you can still cut that down. Uh, it's fine to leave it standing, but you can chop it down, kind of use it as a mulch on the surface, and that's going to help to just kind of add more organic matter to the system. It's going to help to hold more moisture in the system, protect the soil surface a bit, increase aeration. Um, you know, I don't I don't think you necessarily need to leave them standing the whole time, especially if you're gonna you know if it's an annual crop that's gonna just kind of die anyway. Um, there's no reason you have to leave it standing. Uh, I don't think it's gonna do a lot of harm if you do. Um, and then yeah, go ahead and, and kind of plant into that mulch layer what's left of it coming into the next season. Um, you know, mul mulch is an incredible soil conditioner. Um, everything you leave on the surface is gonna help um, help you moving into your next season. It's gonna help build that O horizon and protect it from, from the sun. Um, you know, direct heat on soil is going to sterilize your soil. There's a practice called solar sterilization. Uh, it's used across the world when people uh, are in monocrop systems, they harvest, they turn their soil over, they expose it to direct heat from the sun for, you know, 20, 30 days. Um, and that does help to sterilize your soil. You'll kill pathogens, you'll kill insects, but you'll kill everything else. So, you know, we don't want sterility. We want to have sort of a messy sloppy uh, immunity built into that soil where we've got good, we've got a little bit of bad, uh, but everything can survive. Yeah, I think that's a hard concept for a lot of people to get. They like a nice clean uh, looking uh, uh, farm yeah. or um, so I, I, yeah, that, that's gonna, it's gonna be hard for people to accept, I think uh, at, at the start, especially. Yeah, well, and you know, if you're using conventional um, fertilizer as well, it's, it's very sensitive to uptake. Right. So if you have anything that's growing alongside your crop, it's going to compete for that resource. Right. If you're putting nitrates down or ammonium down, there's going to be root systems that are trying to take that up because it's going to go from the surface down. Um, weeds tend to have fairly shallow root systems. So they're going to be taking up those nutrients first. The more you can build out sort of that native biological um, organic matter based nutrient system, that's going to happen throughout the entire profile of the soil, right? There's, there's going to be less direct competition from other plants because the root systems are going to be growing in slightly different areas. Um, and they're going to be utilizing native uh, microbial interactions within the rhizosphere to leverage the nutrition of the soil. So it's a little bit less competitive once you start shifting towards regenerative systems than when you are applying salts over the surface of the soil or injecting uh, side dressing. Right. So um, we have another question coming in and it has to do with uh, vineyards. Uh, do you have some experience in vineyards and what's uh, what's a good cover crop to grow in a, in a vineyard in your experience? Yeah. So we, we work specifically with, uh, we work with table grapes. Um, so it's not exactly vineyards. The growing systems are very similar. Um, vineyards tend to be a little more sensitive to changes in their terroir and the flavor of their grapes, uh, things along those lines. Um, and when and how, you know, how much access there is to water, um, all of those become kind of more important issues. Um, but anything that you can grow underneath the grapes where you're fixing some nitrogen. So, you know, we've used things like sun hemp in the past, um, which is a great option. Uh, again, we were doing this in Peru. So, you know, you'll have to maybe find an option that's a little bit better suited for, for your conditions. Um, utilizing any kind of clover, uh, dichondria, things that are going to help fix nutrients in the soil 
so that you're actually providing a nutritional benefit uh, to the grapes. Um, you can look into different like radishes, tubers. Um, they're going to scavenge a lot of nut nutrients, store a lot of nutrients in the soil. Um, so those are also great resources. They grow pretty quick, can help compete against weeds. Um, and, you know, we've even planted sweet potato um, underneath the canopy intermixed with the, with the sun hemp. And that gets really good cover um, over the soil. Um, and we didn't actually find a lot of competition between the sea potato and the grapes. Um, you know, the potatoes grow in the soil, they interline, they intermesh with all the grape uh, roots, and then they start to degrade. And then you have all this nutrition coming out of the potato and the, the tuber, um, and they'll grow year after year as well. So um, really just kind of experimenting with what you have available, finding something that is going to grow well. And then when it's shaded, it's still going to be able to kind of survive a little bit. Um, and then depending on what kind of pest pressure or problems you're having, you know, uh, if you have a nematode problem, something like French marigold could be a really good option. Functions as a trap crop. Um, they're also going to produce flowers that are going to attract pollinators uh, to the system. So um, trying to encourage as many like, you know, ladybugs, uh, predatory insects into the system to help control pests. Um, there's a lot of reasons to plant different cover plants. Uh, and you kind of have to work around what's native to your region, what what's gonna take well in that soil, but um, definitely get that planted like after uh, trimming. Um, so leading into to when you're gonna have some growth in the, uh, uh, the vegetative stage. So you get a little light on those plants and they'll start to grow. Um, and then you can kind of work with them, trim them back if you want leading into the, uh, the fruit set. Yeah, so uh, we've got another question coming in now about uh, microbes in general, right? And it's kind of the concept of why don't I just buy a bag of microbes and throw them out there on my soil? And yeah. and the second part of this is how do they actually interact with the, the roots or the soil? I mean, what's the transaction that takes place that actually makes this better? Yeah, let me hop to this next slide here, which has some of this information on there that we can cover um, just to kind of understand how microbes in the soil work and, and where they're coming from and, and the best way to utilize them. So a lot of a lot of the microbes that we focus on are going to be effectively bacteria and fungi, right? That's probably in the lexicon of most growers at this point. There are beneficial bacteria, there's beneficial fungi. We want some mix of those available in the soil and we want them to start making nutrients available for our plants. Um, there are a lot of different species, right? We, we understand less about the soil microbiome than we do about the ocean, right? In the ocean, we understand something like 1% of, <laughs> you know, uh, ocean-based critters. We, we understand about one, like less than 1% of the total biomass of the soil in terms of species diversity. So, you know, when, when people are marketing one single microbe or a bag of like a couple microbes, um, it is, in my opinion, a little bit short-sighted to say, you know, this is the magic microbe that solves everything because usually it's a microbe that'll fix nitrogen or serve one specific function. However, soil ecosystems are incredibly complex. Um, having diversity in that system is part of what makes that system effective. Um, you know, you can even look at having the, uh, the interactions between these microbes and how they change when they're interacting with other microbes. So if you have 10 of these together, it's gonna to be greater than the sum of their parts, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we really wanna focus on the balance within that system more than anything. Um, and that includes looking at, you know, how much bacteria do we have dominating that system versus fungal growth? And that brings us to kind of like this concept of succession, um, which is the ability of a soil to produce different kinds of crops, right? So as, as we look into different biomes, leading from barren soil to heavily weeded soil, all the way to old growth forests, 
we tend to see a shift in the balance of the bacterial community and the fungal community. Um, and this is something where, you know, it's partly the influence of the plant, partly the influence of the microbes. Um, but there is this shift between having a heavy fungal dominance in old growth forests and having a heavy bacterial dominance um, in kind of heavily weeded grasslands, uh, things along those lines. And there's actually a chemical reason for this too. Bacteria function uh, in uh, alkaline environments, higher pHs, right? Uh, they produce more nitrates. So that's going to push systems towards these fast growing annual crops that we often call weeds, right? Um, or if you're looking at something like corn or soy, that's going to be a little bit more on the bacterial side. They're going to want to leverage those fast, easy nutrients. As you get towards more fungally dominated soils, those soils are going to be a lot lower pH. The, the fungi tend to push out uh, acids that are going to lower the pH in the soil. Um, they're going to create a lot more structure in that soil, and they're going to release a lot more ammonium. Um, then they're going to release nitrates. So you can kind of see this chemical balance that comes through the pr uh, profile of the soil as well, just from a biomass perspective. Um, and then when it comes to the interaction of the actual community, um, you know, we know so little about how those interactions come together. Um, we, we really want to experiment and explore how all these different interactions and the diversity of these microbes can function to, to serve a plant uh, under different conditions. So increasing the amount of diversity there is really important. And one of the ways to do that is planting a diversity of food sources or many different plants that can get into the soil. Another way to do that, the approach that we tend to take um, is to leverage nature and create an entire ecosystem that can be transferred into the soil. So not just one or two bacteria, but taking thousands of bacteria and fungi, you know, putting protozoa and nematodes into that system, which are predatory organisms that help to consume the bacteria. They help to cycle those nutrients and make them plant available. You really wanna look at it from a holistic ecosystem level and not so much of this is the one magic bacteria that's gonna solve all my problems. And, and that's not to say that those bacteria don't have an effect in soil or they don't work, um, but we tend to see with those isolate uh, microbes, they'll be effective in some soils and not in other soils. You know, they are isolated from a specific region and area. They're grown in labs. Typically, they're not going to come in with a native immune system. So they're not naturalized to your environment. Uh, and that seems to be an important factor when you're implementing these types of solutions. You want microbes that are adjusted to the area you're going to apply them. Is there a way to uh, drip them in with your irrigation? Definitely. Yeah. So, you know, uh, most bacteria, if you're buying bottled products, if you're using these things off the shelf, they should mesh pretty well with most irrigation systems. Bacteria are very small. They're like one micron in, in diameter. They're tiny. So they're not really going to clog up systems all that much. Um, you know, with, with the systems that we have in place, we, we have a little bit more particulate that comes through. So we have to filter it down more to get into your typical drip irrigation. Uh, but if you're using like an overhead irrigation, a pivot, um, pretty much anything is injectable uh, through those systems. Generally, we try to lower the amount of pressure in the system to like below 35 PSI whenever we're doing these types of applications. Um, and we typically try not to mix it with any other chemicals or salts because it will affect the quality of the, the application. Um, but, you know, yeah, you can go through irrigation with this stuff, top dress it. Um, usually you want to get enough water in the system to drench it through the top layer of the soil if it's a hot day and you go and do a light spray and there's a lot of sun, uh, you're gonna solarize those microbes. They're gonna dry up and die basically. So you wanna make sure you're getting it all the way down into the soil, um, but you can side dress it under the soil surface. You can apply it while you're uh, planting your seed um, through, a, through a little drip. Um, there's a lot of different ways to integrate it, but the closer you get it to the root system, typically the better off you're gonna be. Yeah.
Fascinating. So, Miles, this is uh, you're such a wealth of knowledge. I mean, we could go on for hours. I could tell about this. I Probably <laughs> appreciate this information. And, you know, taking into account what we've just learned, um, what in the world does your company do? How do you help growers do this? Yeah, um, basically, you know, this is actually a good time to pop this up. Typical practices are, are pushing soils towards this more bacterial basic state right? We're, we're depleting our soil microbiology um, and is leading us into these conditions of, of more drought, more loss of, of nutrients, uh, loss of topsoil. Uh, what we do at Terraforma is help growers reverse this trend. Uh, we help identify where in secession they need to be, how their microbiome needs to be balanced. We'll do soil sampling to understand the entire profile of the microbiome in the soil. Uh, understand what is deficient in that soil and then build a customized solution um, of microbes to be applied. Um, all of that is done on site at the farm. Um, we want to go for as broad diversity with native microbes as physically possible to make sure that we're getting all these microbes into the soil near the seedbed, near the root system, um, and giving that, that plant the best chance to associate with those microbes and build a healthy community. So we're kind of restoring soils that have been mistreated for you know up to 50, 60, hundreds of years. Um, and then we also work with these growers to help implement some practices like cover plants, um, helping them to reach their goals uh, somewhere along that spectrum of conventional to regenerative. You know, we've had growers go full organic, full regenerative, no chemicals. We have a lot of growers that are in a mixed system where they're still using chemicals, but they want to try to reduce that a little bit. Um, and usually that's kind of you know, taking baby steps, learning a little bit about this is how I do this practice. Let's, let's come up, let's start a trial. We can help you design those trials. Um, so, you know, we really don't want to just hand you a product and leave you on your own to figure it out. We want to help be there as a resource to make sure everything's executed properly and that you have the, the best knowledge that you possibly can on the system. You have a support network there to help you through the process. Yeah, fantastic. So if uh, somebody wants to uh, get a hold of you to uh, 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 answer yeah. some more questions or hire your team, uh, how, how do they do that? Uh, yeah, you can either find us on our website at uh, terraformasoil.com. You can reach out to us there. I've also got my phone number listed here directly. Um, you know, you can find us on all your typical like LinkedIn style sites. Um, but uh, yeah, I would encourage either to, to reach out by phone or to reach out by, by email. Um, and through the website, and we can answer any questions, kind of help anybody who's curious, kind of start that journey towards uh, a better practice, a, a more regenerative practice that, that is focused on building your soil health year after year instead of breaking it down. Yeah, well, I'm a pretty optimistic person to start with, but after hearing you, I'm even more optimistic about the future and the change and what's happening. It's all very exciting. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Miles, for coming on today. And uh, you know, spending this time with us and more importantly, spending all the time up to this point, learning <laughs> about what you're doing and uh, and and trying to help uh, actually motivate change in others. That's uh, that's really great. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Richard. Yeah, I, obviously, we had one more slide on there. So <laughs> there's always so much more to talk about. You know, it's, it's never enough time. But um, thank you for having me. It's been fantastic to, to be on. And, you know, uh, hopefully, uh, 
hopefully this piques some people's interest. Yeah. yeah and I, I assure you, we're going to have you back. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot more I know that you know that can help our uh, viewers. So thank you. And we will have you back in a, in a little while. I want to say thank you to all the viewers that joined us today. We, uh, we really appreciate you spending some of your day with us. We know how busy you are these days. So uh, we really appreciate that. Remember, you can see any of our more than 300 uh, training videos at changeusa.com forward slash trainings. And remember, they are all free for you to use. So um, thank you, uh, everybody, for joining us today. Uh, we're going to be back next week. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, fall and uh, why water waste seems to accelerate in the fall and ways you can reduce that water waste. So again, uh, Miles, thank you. Uh, thanks, everybody. And uh, we'll see you next week. Cheers. Thanks, everyone.